All right, here we are again. Uh, another Hagley History Hangout brought to you by the Hagley Library, where we talk to people who have made use of our collections in the hopes that you will learn something about what we have and also that we have fun talking to people who have been through here, who we've gotten to know in the course of their activities. Uh, today, I'm with Laura Phillips Sawyer, who has written the book, American Fair Trade, Proprietary Capitalism, Corporatism, and the New Competition, 1890-1940. And here's your very nice cover about this. Um, Laura is at the University of Georgia Law School. She is a business and economic and legal historian who is one of the things, a trustee of the Business History Conference. Um, and very happy to have her here. So Laura, thank you for, for joining us to talk about Yeah, your thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this invitation. Hagley played a uh, formative role in the book coming together, or I should say first the dissertation coming together, uh, and then um, the book, the book as well. So I am indebted to Hagley, certainly. Well, we'll circle back to that in a minute there, but uh, let me start off by asking you about the title, American Fair Trade, and the immediate uh, issue is that for many people, a fair trade is about the kind of coffee that you buy in a supermarket. And this, of course, is not about the coffee that you buy in a supermarket. It's not about the current notions of fair trade. So please explain this. What do you mean by fair trade? What is the sort of the, the if you will, the range that the, the, what the book is trying to tackle? Sure. Thanks for that question. Um, so, uh, of course, fair trade has many meanings across time and space. But I think generally, uh, most basic level, it refers, refers to a branding strategy, oftentimes, um, that associates some product or service um, with standards of fair competition. And of course, those can vary, right? So today we think about um, fair labor standards or making sure that um, producers or growers, to follow on that coffee example, are paid a living wage, for example, um, or receive certain benefits, things of that nature. Um, and those types of ideas go back pretty far uh, in history. And uh, there's been um, excellent work written on um, white label campaigns to protect um, women uh, in workshops um, or to end child labor um, or to just protect workers more generally. Um, and those do come into play in the book. They are connected uh, to these ideas uh, that, that I've pursued here. But um, for the particular protagonist in my story, um, I'm looking at independent proprietors um, beginning in the late 19th century and then through the New Deal period and the way in which they came together and organized um, in order to change antitrust law specifically, um, but also to have a fair trade uh, campaign. Um, so the the legal history is really what got me started on the project um, and uh, the branding stuff came in as I was understanding or trying to understand how litigation strategies changed and how lobbying campaigns developed. Um, the American Fair Trade moniker actually comes from Louis Brandeis um, and he um, was a very smart um, politician and rhetorician, right? And he helped uh, rebrand what had been referred to, and still is uh, referred to as uh, resale price maintenance, a much less palatable branding term than fair, than fair trade or even fair competition uh, for that matter. Um, so I'd be happy to talk a little bit about uh, what brought together uh, these fair traders 
um, and then how Brandeis fits in. Um, please, please go. Go right ahead. Keep on going. Okay. All right. I just, I, so I, um, I think like any history professor or law professor for that matter, um, if given the opportunity, I could probably monologue for too long. So <laughs> you have to interject uh, at any time. Um, so uh, in 1911, there's a famous case, uh, Dr. Miles Medical Association versus Park and Sons. And in this case, there were um, producers of proprietary medicine, Dr. Miles brand, um, elixirs and such, uh, and they were practicing resale price maintenance contracts. And these are vertical contracts where a producer wants to control the way in which a retailer is going to do a whole host of things like sales displays or buyback programs. If the, if the product isn't selling, they don't want it to sit on the shelves too long, but also prices. And so Dr. Miles had these price schedules where they said, if it sits on the shelf for X number of days, this price, then you know, 10 days later, that price, that sort of thing. And they had the argument that uh, first they argued they could do that under common law. Um, and they argued that this helped uh, preserve the goodwill of their brand, right? Which is part of their, what they own in their company, the value of it. And um, it's challenged by one of these retailers that wants to use it as a loss leader. And Dr. Miles said, you can't do that. We have these contracts. Um, you were not part of the contract. And so we want you to you know, cease and desist. Parkinson says, no, I will not. I will challenge you in court. And it goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says, um, actually, this looks like a price restraint. And it looks like uh, Dr. Miles is trying to create like a pool of retailers who can't compete on price. And we want price competition because it has all of these good knock-on effects like lower prices and competition that creates quality and you know, that sort of thing. Let's stop, um, you a second. Well, let's stop you a second. I mean, what you're describing uh, that they want is similar to what we now have, for example, with Apple phones, where Apple can tell all the different people who sell it, this is the price that you have to sell it at. I mean, we'll, get, we'll circle back to how that happens, but that's just for people who aren't sure, but that's what it's about. And so what you're describing is a Supreme Court case that would, would have, if it stayed, permitted retailers to slash the prices on Apple phones, wherever they are, to sell at the low cost so that you go to Best Buys or if you go to stores at all, uh, or Walmart or places like that for that mm -hmm. kind of a purpose. Is that, is that accurate? That's what you're describing? Yeah, exactly. So um, this is the... Um, what they were trying to combat, right? Um, the loss leader or price slashing um, on a particular brand product, right? And uh, the Supreme Court comes down and says, um, we, don't, we don't even wanna hear about any pro-competitive effects, um, any you know, benefits to consumers or anyone. Um, this is per se illegal, and that's you know, credited with creating this per, per se prohibition. But interestingly, um, Oliver Wendell Holmes dissents, and he says, well, I don't know, maybe the producers should be able to have some control over their brand name because they are invested in um, the goodwill surrounding uh, that brand. You know, if they want to sell the company later, that's part of what they're selling. Um, and the law, you know, retailers may not, uh, maybe should not be able to uh, perform these in these ways. Um, 
And so I thought the case was interesting um, when I first uh, read about this movement back in, I don't know, the early 2000s, um, in part because the Supreme Court had just overruled it. So the Supreme Court in um, 2005, I think it is, um, uh, overturns this Dr. Miles precedent and says, actually, there might be some pro-competitive effects of this type of resale price maintenance contract. And that, look, these are actually vertical contracts between a producer and a retailer, and we've got to weigh the effects, right? Like, it's not always a good thing in every case. Um, you know, a monopolist shouldn't be able to do this. But, um, but there could be some reasons why um, RPM could be, could be a good thing to allow for a more diverse set of retailers and to prevent the type of free riding on a brand or that sort of thing. RPM means retail price maintenance for those. Yeah, exactly. I was in a business school for a while, so acronyms just come naturally. <laughs> um, so, um, so I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I read more about the what had been written about the fair trade movement in this case. Um, and the way in which it was portrayed in the historiography. And what's interesting is the logic that the Supreme Court employs in 2005 reads a lot like what Louis Brandeis was arguing um, in 1911. So he comes to the aid of these independent proprietors and he says, um, first of all, quit calling it RPM, let's call it fair trade. Um, if you wanna support independent proprietors, this is a, um, better method by which to get your message out. Um, and then in terms of the economics, he actually makes this argument about pro-competitive effects. So he says, look, this is, um, we don't want retailers competing um, on the price of a particular brand. We want retailers competing um, across different brands, um, which is what we refer to as interbrand competition. And so this can, spur product um, diversification, differentiation, right? Right, in other words, what you could have in your Apple store is you have your lower end Apples, you also have your Samsungs and your other cheaper phones, but Apple hangs on to the expensive latest iPhone 11 or 12 or 13 or whatever it's at to right now. And so you, you encourage, so the way you get price variation is by other brands coming in there and competing in that, in that way. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And then Apple gets to protect its own brand as being this specialty product that has these attributes that are associated with this higher price and, and what have you. Uh, now, I, I don't want to go so far as to say that Apple uh, is supporting like fair competition through <laughs> its Chinese based uh, manufacturers. I'm not going I'm not going there. Um, but yeah, my point is that um, I just found it very interesting that what Brandeis was trying to do um, was really disregarded and um, kind of put down in the literature as, oh, he doesn't understand economics um, and the value of larger firms. You know, he had a, an affinity for a bygone era, that kind of language. But then the Supreme Court, you know, later through modern economic analysis comes to a conclusion that looks much like what Brandeis was saying back in the early 20th century. So that just kind of piqued my interest and I wanted to understand that um, a bit better. Um, how such a um, smart uh, litigator 
um, and someone who is very good at legal and economic reasoning um, could support a movement that then was so dismissed um, in, in much of uh, the historiography. Um, and so that's when I started to investigate uh, more the firms uh, that he was working with. I mean, I, I dug into the, um, the doctrine side first to understand what happens. Um, but then in order to understand why litigants are doing certain things, you have to dig into, well, what are their business methods? Like, what, is, what does their whole supply chain you know, look like or distribution chain uh, look like? Um, and then how are they organizing in other ways to affect change uh, that they've been pushing for since you know, the uh, late 19th century? Um, and that's when I um, looked into Dr. Miles and got to go to Elkhart, Indiana, uh, to uh, look at the company archives there, which was a lot of fun, reading through those old contracts and uh, correspondence with retailers and dealers. Um, they were later purchased by Bayer, the Bayer Corporation, um, I think in the 70s, I can't recall precisely, um, but a lot of their archival materials from the early 20th century remains in Elkhart, um, which is the RV capital of the United States, in case anyone didn't know that. Um, and, uh, and then I also started looking into trade associations. Mm. Um, and they were, the Dr. Miles Company was heavily involved with the um, national associations um, of uh, retail druggists um, because they were trying to get their support. Uh, and they also worked with the wholesale druggists um, as well. And uh, both of those are based in Chicago, um, but their um, trade association publications um, are all over. Because I was looking at medicines, it turns out that the UC San Francisco Medical Library has um, a vast holding of trade association publications from these druggists. So I went there and just found a treasure trove of um, published materials on um, lobbying and litigation strategies that they were you know, trying to pursue in order to, to change the Dr. Miles ruling. And when they didn't have uh, success as litigants, you know, they became active lobbyists and were um, uh, very enthusiastic about working with regulators at the Federal Trade Commission uh, once that was established in 1914 in order to um, change the rules of the game um, without having to go all the way through the Supreme Court. Let me, let me ask you to back up a minute and explain why these restrictions are there in the first place. I mean, these are rules that, early 20th century rules, that limit the ability of firms to plan together, to do things together, price maintenance and all sorts of other activities. Why are these laws in place in the early 20th century? What happened prior to that point to generate this legal thicket which they're now trying to work their way through? Yeah, so, I mean, it's the, the law here is really interesting because um, prior to the passage of the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, common law governed competition in a variety of markets. And... Um, certain restraints of trade, so association agreements um, or uh, covenants not to compete that are limited in time and space were permissible under common law rules. But the Sherman Antitrust Act um, comes along and it um, 
codifies common law in a federal statute, but it doesn't, congressional intent is not entirely clear and it doesn't give a lot of direction to the Supreme Court. So in a lot of ways, the Supreme Court is, you know, left to its own devices and is going to take the cases that are brought before it um, in order to determine um, what constitutes a restraint um, and, um, and or what constitutes monopolization. And so these are all section one restraint cases. They're, these aren't monopolies, <laughs> these little independent guys. Um, but uh, the Supreme Court through its first 25 years of dealing with the Sherman Act kind of flounders around a bit trying to figure out exactly what these rules are going to be. And the early history of the Sherman Antitrust Act, you know, from 1898 or so, um, this court tries to have a literalist interpretation where they say, let's just create some strict rules um, and um, limit, you know, all combinations or restraints of trade. Well, that's not entirely feasible um, because all types of contracts and relationships um, could be then seen as restraints. So they walk it back and create in 1911, not in the Dr. Miles case, but in Standard Oil of the U.S., um, the rule of reason. And so this allows the court to weigh the competitive effects of particular restraints or uh, monopolization. That was a section two monopolization case as well. Um, and so what the fair traders want is for the rule of reason to be applied to what they are doing, um, to uh, managing competition in a variety of ways. And my book um, examines the way in which they do that, both through the courts and through administrative agencies working with regulators. Um, and I think demonstrates, you know, the way in which they had quite a bit of success um, and a surprising amount of success, particularly given the way in which we think about competition policy or antitrust today, in the way in which there's this sort of mythology, perhaps, around America having this like free market of competition. Um, when through the 1920s, it was, it was a very, um, it was a quite variegated field. Um, where there are a lot of things, um, a lot of different business relationships going on that organizations or agencies like the FTC actually supported through things like trade practice conferences um, that, that um, facilitated uh, information sharing amongst business groups. And um, I think would be surprising to a lot of people who haven't um, studied uh, business history um, or have only focused on really large firms. Well, talk to me a bit more about these trade associations. I mean, there's, you know, they're, you say people be surprised by what they did. They might be surprised by what, what the Federal Trade Commission was doing in the 1920s. Lay that out a bit. Explain what this exceptional story, this, this unexpected story uh, is. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, um, so, the trade associations are doing all kinds of interesting things. And um, your question kind of uh, brought up two things in my mind, uh, what they're doing in the US and then whether or not it's exceptional, right? If it's US exceptionalism, because there's some really interesting and parallel things going on in Europe. And that was what I found really surprising and interesting and that I learned at Hagley actually. 
Um, but I didn't delve in too much in the book because, you know, a book, a book needs a, a beginning and an end and, you know, you can't go on forever. But Tell us about the U.S. stuff first. And then okay, the yeah, so, so the first part, there. yeah, on the, these trade associations, I, d I dug into um, the uh, druggist associations, but there are also some interesting litigation um, and FTC documents on um, lumber associations as well. And this was a time when the rule of reason um, is governing antitrust. Now, granted, Dr. Miles' case is good law throughout this period, and that is a per se prohibition on price fixing of this nature. But there are ways in which associations, producers or retailers um, exchange information on um, production, um, on methods, on methods of production and then actual you know, goods produced, sold, contracts and bids that get like as close to sharing information on real time prices um, as you can without saying, you know, explicitly, um, price coordination. And um, so that's like not too surprising, right? Um, particularly in businesses that might be, um, or sectors that are confronting problems of what's referred to as ruinous competition, um, where prices are being driven down. Um, you might not be very surprised to you know, see that type of um, coordination happening, right? And so the question is, is it cooperation? Is it collusion? And the smaller, the fewer numbers of um, producers or retailers, the more likely these things are. Um, and the Federal Trade Commission um, is established in 1914 in order to um, regulate unfair uh, competition. Uh, the Supreme Court comes down and says, actually, we'll tell you what constitutes unfair competition, uh, but you guys go ahead and do your thing. And those administrators have largely been dismissed in the literature but they, um, for being ineffective at reorganizing the American economy, um, and I take that point, but I think that the Federal Trade Commission actually does have some success in helping these groups organize in ways in which they uh, may not have um, otherwise. And so beginning in 26, the Federal Trade Commission starts holding these trade practice conferences. And basically they say, these trade associations are having these meetings where they're doing all of these things, sharing information on everything that comes as close to uh, price as you can. Um, and it would probably be better if we could get in there and do some monitoring um, of this. And it's not, um, it doesn't go so far as to legalizing their business methods so as to make them enforceable, like an enforceable price fixing contract or something. They don't go that far. Um, but they do um, help in a number of ways to um, try to reduce waste um, and coordinate industry standards. Um, on, you know, for example, in the lumber industry on harvesting and how much um, uh, timber land would be uh, cut in any given time. So as to reduce overproduction is the idea. And so um, Hoover, uh, Herbert Hoover, the future president of the United States, at that time, he's the, um, the Secretary of Commerce. And um, I believe Ellis Hawley, the historian said, and he's the secretariat of everything else. And he has his hands 
in all of these administrative departments. And he's at Commerce, but he's helping organize these things at the FTC. And he's also uh, influential with um, um, future um, uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Harlan Fisk Stone, who um, writes uh, the maple flooring um, decision in, gosh, I want to say 28. I feel like I should be able to remember it like that. <laughs> but uh, in that opinion, he comes down and says, you know, these ind some industries do have problems of ruinous competition, and we should um, examine the ways in which they're doing business um, rather than simply prohibiting all information sharing, all coordination, um, carte blanche. I mean, I'll just observe that there's a, the people who've maybe watch other episodes, that there's an echo of the Joanne Yates, the Craig Murphy book here about standards, the importance of establishing standards. And here's a case where these trade associations are, 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 doing, are doing this work. Also, again, for people who haven't followed the literature, there's also an echo of the old um, Chandler-Scranton, uh, Alfred Chandler-Philip <laughs> Scranton debate, where um, Phil, he's a friend, argued for looking at small firms firms that weren't a big companies and all that. And a lot of times these trade associations, they're not necessarily small companies, but they're fragmented right. industries. And what Laura's describing is the way they, they get together and set standards and establish some rules by which they can behave. And this is the surprising story of the, of the 20s is how much, um, how much they are doing. Uh, now, as part of this trade association, I know you ended up wandering into the Chamber of Commerce of the United States materials that are here at Hagley. Uh, tell us something about that, how you, what the chamber is doing in this period of time and what you drew from the records they have here. That's right. The Chamber of Commerce documents at Hagley were a huge find for me. Um, I was looking at all these trade association publications and they increasingly started talking about, we need to be at the Chamber of Commerce. We need to be at these meetings and have representation. And that is going to be a major vehicle through which we can affect national legislation, you know, change um, even litigation strategies, right? So in part, it was an information gathering exercise by these trade associations, but they also wanted to have an impact on the chamber. And the chamber was, you know, a pretty um, expansive organization at that time. It's not just center firms. It's not just the biggest industrialists. And, um, so I found um, these connections at Hagley. In part, I was looking at some company records and then said, oh, I better take a look at this. And the Chamber of Commerce records, unsurprisingly, is um, vast and expensive. <laughs> but what Hagley has is all of the meeting minutes. And so they had a stenographer who was typing away furiously in the corner uh, you know, it's, you know, riddled with typos, but I don't know how this person did it. I mean, keeping up with all the Q&A speeches um, and all this um, discussion that happens not only in the um, main meetings where you would have all members or, you know, those who could attend in D.C. where it was normally held, um, and all of the banquets, um, but also in all of these study groups. And so I started to look through um, what's the chamber doing, what's their position on this, thinking they would represent uh, major industrialists, you know, those types of firms. And I found like that there was quite a bit of diversity 
And a lot of these study groups were dedicated to antitrust, expanding the rule of reason, um, and digging into different information sharing practices and what's legal, what's not, how can we change things. And it was actually in the Chamber of Commerce documents that I came across all of these business people talking about, well, look what Europe is doing. Look at their um, cartel policies and their, um, they were often referring to um, Germany, um, Denmark, um, some on the French, uh, and then also um, referring to the British as well. But there was obviously um, quite a bit of concentration around uh, the Germans um, throughout the time period I study. And, you know, there in, in Europe, there were a variety of different um, national mechanisms for controlling associations, um, but cartels were given quite a bit more leeway. Um, and then they were regulated as such, right? And so they had different labor regulations, different relationships with the banks, things like that. Um, and a lot of people in America were making arguments that we should have this here and um, it would make America more competitive abroad. And so my, the current project I'm working on, I may be coming back to Hagley, um, is looking at um, U.S. antitrust abroad. Uh, uh. Um, and so all of those little threads that came out from working on my first book project, I hope to um, unite and tie neatly into the post-war period. Um, in the book, I touch a little bit on the Webb-Pomeranian Act um, of 1917. And that was basically an, a piece of legislation that exempted export associations from antitrust prosecution mm. if they submit their plans ahead of time to the Department of Justice. And, um, and it's still in the books today. Um, it's handled differently than it was then. But you know, through the interwar period, it was basically the U.S. saying, well, if you're going to go and work abroad uh, as an export association, it's okay if you collude a little bit, because that's what the Europeans are doing anyway. <laughs> uh, well, we'll talk separately about this, but I will say that, that you mentioned the 1917 Act. That's five years after the formation of the National Foreign Trade Council, which mm -hmm. is a very active advocate of, uh, of foreign, foreign exports. So there's, there's a story there about uh, that, that I look forward to hearing, hearing more about. Absolutely. And I need to mine the Hagley resources uh, for more on that, uh, because there's surprisingly little uh, written on it. All right. Well, we're going to keep this to your book rather than a conversation about future resources for that. That'll be, the, that'll be in a couple of years. We'll do the next book, right? Um, but on this point, um, talk to me about American exceptionalism. Uh, I mean, American exceptionalism, for those who don't, who don't have that phrase coming off the, the, their, their, their tongue, um, refers to the way in which Americans, America's business environment, legal environment, was distinctive from that of Europe, especially the restrictions on the ability of firms to cooperate. Uh, the cartels you describe in Europe, they could set prices, they could set wages. This, again, is one of the big differences in the nature. And, and one thing this has done is kick a lot of political economy research to being just about the United States, being very much inside the U.S. borders. Um, so you think about that a lot. So talk to me about that, American exceptionalism and how it relates to your story. Yeah, that's right. I think that there is, <clears throat> on, at the surface level, I think there's a lot of truth to it, right? That um, antitrust um, at the federal level is an American um, story and it antitrust um, begins in the United States and becomes exported out, like an Americanized version of it is exported in the post-World War II period. 
But in the period that I write about in the book, um, it is, it is a, a different jurisdiction. But what I found was there was so much movement on the ground with these business people who I investigate in the book um, to change antitrust laws, to widen or liberalize the rule of reason and its application to smaller businesses, that you do see more variety and diversity than I think the, um, the headline um, suggests, right? And the way in which that ends up happening is through the also exceptional nature of American federalism, right? It's hard to compare um, the United States with a particular country in Europe because those are very different in size, you know, geographic size, population, and just scope of industries. Um, but if you look at the, if you boil down in the United States to the state level, you can see um, a great deal of diversity between states and how they're handling these types of issues. And um, so in the book, I end up looking quite a bit at California um, because they had such an active uh, movement uh, organizing producers and retailers. Um, and so there, this is by the time you get to the late 1920s and then into the Great Depression, retailers really pick up uh, this fair trade movement and they, they want it in order to reduce um, uh, falling prices, right? They're looking for some floor. And you have a great character in your book, Edna Gleason. I mean, I know, uh, I love Edna. I mean, talk to us about Edna. So Edna is this just amazing figure for the 1920s. She is um, um, a pharmacist by training. If I remember correctly, she's the second woman in the state of California to pass the licensing exam. And she marries a pharmacist too. Uh, sadly, he passes away um, in um, the early 20s um, from pneumonia. And she... Um, takes over the business. They own a little retail drug store in uh, Sacramento and, um, sorry, in Scranton. And they, um, she's expected to give it up uh, when he passes away and she refuses. Uh, she's uh, quite headstrong. And it's when a um, chain store tries to uh, enter their smaller town that uh, she starts to get involved in uh, organizing other retailers in her town. And she um, goes about doing that uh, because she offers particular services and she was known for helping indigent populations and things of that nature. Um, there's a woman um, who had conducted some interviews with people who knew Edna. Um, and so I drew a little bit from that and then mainly drew from trade association publications because she didn't leave any personal papers. But she coordinates uh, retailers throughout the state after having success at the local level to keep out, I think it was called the Cutright uh, Drugstore. And um, she ends up launching this fair trade campaign in California and modeling it after um, what other specialty proprietors or producers um, had done earlier um, in uh, that century. And so the success that she has there ends up uh, propelling the National Association of Retail Druggists um, to pursue um, uh, more seriously uh, legislation at the federal level. 
And um, so she receives like a um, honorary um, title from the right. NARD and they give her like a rifle or something, <laughs> a revolver, revolver um, as okay. a gift. Um, and uh, she's just this excellent story of someone who goes to these meetings and stands up and um, protests against um, the use of loss leaders and um, that type of activism leads to companies like Dr. Miles, um, which had, is based in Indiana, moving and setting up a subsidiary in California uh, as well. And um, so she was just a, an interesting person who was certainly a capitalist by any measures, um, but very much a proponent of this regulated uh, competition and uh, this vision for what um, a progressive sort of capitalism might look like. Um, and now, of course, there's a downside, right, to all of this. I mean, it's putting quite a bit of power in the hands of retailers who push backwards through the distribution chain and can dictate what manufacturers do to a certain extent. Um, and during a time of falling prices, uh, they were content to try to keep prices on certain brand name goods up. Now, of course, that doesn't affect generics, but, you know, there could be some, um, stickiness to prices that might keep generic prices up um, as well. So there, there are certainly downsides to the, to the movement. Um, but, you know, they were making arguments about um, if our sales dip, uh, we have to lay people off. We have to take these other measures and we're trying to keep independent proprietors open. So that was her um, argument. And she was just a really fiery figure. Uh, to get to study, although I, I really wish that she had left papers. Mm -hmm. well, so, well, I mean, this, is, of course, is an issue that doesn't go away. I mean, the politics fade, but this is the Walmart and the Amazon issue. You know, is it, is it you know, always lowest prices? You know, and of course, that means that small places go to business. They can't compete with those prices. So this dilemma that you describe is a dilemma that, that really persists throughout the 20th and now the 21st century between allowing prices to be cut as low as possible? Is that what the consumers want? And do they also want to have only Walmart or Amazon as the places where they buy their goods? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And so, you know, there's a movement afoot right now um, of neo-Brandeisians uh, who are interested in, um, I don't think having uh, resale price maintenance as the answer to all of these problems, um, but they are making claims such as those about uh, the market power uh, that Amazon exerts and um, the political ramifications of that type of economic concentration as well. Thus the title Neo-Brandeisian. Um, but I think that there's um, a lot of truth and a lot to consider uh, with, with those types of, of arguments. Now that's not really um, necessarily an endorsement. I mean, I think a lot of people, uh, much to my consternation, misinterpret the book as being like an advocate, advocacy piece for cartelization. <laughs> I've had a couple economists actually ask yeah. that. Um, and that, that's not really the purpose. I mean, it's an exploration of these ideas and their ramifications in the shape of our administrative state and in the way in which we regulate competition. And I think that the story um, that I tell in the book and that neo-Brandeisians are investigating right now is one about the connections between economic concentration and political participation and this accountability of firms. And I think that 
it's that antitrust has really lost any focus on on that, but it is definitely part of the policy um, origin story and the way in which I think consumers and citizens think about um, antitrust or anti-monopoly um, more broadly. Well, very good. Both we bring up to the present, the issue is still with us. You can decide which side you feel about, but I think you've illuminated, shown a light on the fair trade going back a long way. So, so Laura, thank you. And, and soon we'll have to talk about coming back to Hagley again. Love to Absolutely. I look forward to it. Oh, great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Roger.